And I started realizing how easy it is for people to make discoveries because there's not a lot of people looking. People don't really look at nature and appreciate it. Just I feel like a lot of times nature, the way people look at it, it kind of revolves around people instead of the creatures in nature itself. Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who delights in sharing this planet with millions of other species of living beings. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking about over 20,000 of those other species, native bees, with Crystal Hickman, whose voice you just heard. In this episode, we discuss the widely varied social lives of bees, bee architecture, whether or not honeybees are an invasive species, buzz pollination, where to find native bees near you, the potential of native bees in agriculture, and the importance of these beings not just to humans, but to entire ecosystems. And if you've been following along with the last couple of episodes, you already know that I recently released a set of six California nature-themed valentines featuring artists who have been guests on Golden State Naturalist, including today's guest, Crystal Hickman. Crystal's valentine is a photorealistic ballpoint pen drawing of a California bumblebee, Bombus californicus, with the words, I want to be in a symbiotic relationship with you. The set also features art by Obi Kaufman, John Muir Laws, Jane Kim, Robin Lee Carlson, and Marnie Filling. I love every single one of these cards, and I think you'll heart them too. So go check them out at love.goldenstatenaturalist.com. This project is rad for three reasons. One, you get these super high-quality valentines to share with friends or keep for yourself. Two, each purchase supports me in creating new episodes of the podcast. And three, 10% of the profit from this project will be donated directly to CalWild, which is the only statewide organization dedicated solely to protecting and restoring the wild places and native biodiversity of California's public lands. It's a win all around. So again, you can find those at love.goldenstatenaturalist.com or by following the link in the show notes. Just make sure to grab your set soon because they're going away after Valentine's Day. I also want to remind you that this is the 10th episode out of 12 in season three. So just two more episodes after this one. And then I'll be taking a break from making new episodes and heading out into the field to record the interviews for season four. I already have lots of wonderful guests you're going to love lined up for next season in a few locations around the state, which I'm very excited about. So stay tuned for more about that. I'll share a little bit more on the podcast as those start to take shape, but if you want to be the first to know and contribute your questions to be asked during interviews, you can become a patron of Golden State Naturalist for just $4 a month. That $4 also gets you access to the patrons-only book club, which is reading An Immense World by Ed Yong next month, as well as video and audio extras from select episodes, including audio extras from this episode. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash michellefulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. If you want to know what my face looks like or follow a new video series I recently launched that teaches the vocabulary you need to talk like a naturalist, you can follow me at Golden State Naturalist on Instagram or TikTok. I also recently recorded a very quick video about beings in Middle Earth that I thought maybe 20 people would watch, and it's weirdly blowing up and has like over 300,000 views right now. So go tell me what kind of being you would be in the Lord of the Rings universe just for fun if you go in for that sort of thing. But I also wonder, like all of these new followers, what's going to happen when they find out that like I talk about bugs this much? Oh, well. But now let's get to the episode. Crystal Hickman is a TEDx speaker, community scientist, National Geographic explorer, self-taught wealth of knowledge on native bees, photographer, artist, and creator of the beautiful Native Bees of the Western United States card deck, which features 100 cards and 42 species of native bees. So without further ado, let's hear from Crystal Hickman on Golden State Naturalist. I met up with Crystal on a 95-degree July day in an unshaded expanse of grass dotted with the bright yellow flowers of the Great Valley gum plant. We parked not far from I-80 in Yolo County, and as soon as we stepped out of our cars, we saw these teeny tiny bees called Anthophorula cayenura. Really small. I'd say they're like six to eight millimeters. I think that like if you saw them from far away and you didn't know bees, you might think there's like a little cloud of large gnats over there. Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, the females have like really, really, like a lot of pollen on their back legs. It's really cute. And then there's males flying around checking the flowers and kind of like dive bombing the females. <laughs> we'll get back to the tiny bees and my conversation with Crystal in just a moment. 
Welcome back. Today, we're talking native bees with Crystal Hickman. And the native bees we were seeing on our Yolo County outing weren't exactly what I expected. Near the ground, do you see them? Those are bees? Yeah. I need to train my eye that those are bees because I think that I would have just assumed there were some other little flying fruit. Yeah. So there's a bunch of them around here. They're probably males. What makes you think they're males? So males always do these little like flying patterns when they're they're basically spending either their time nectaring or finding females to mate with. Okay. So bee behaviors can give you a hint about the sex of the bees, even if they're tiny and hard to get a close look at. But where should you go to see native bees at all? So when you're looking around, when you're thinking about like where you want to find some bees, like how do you figure out where to go? I look for a lot of habitat that has native plants. Okay. I mean, that's pretty much that. And also areas that have like bare soil like this mm -hmm. can be really helpful. But you know what? Some bees really like disturbed areas okay. as well. So, I mean, it just kind of depends on what bee you're looking for. But honestly, native bees are kind of everywhere. As long as there aren't like lawns, like a lot of green mm -hmm. grass, mm -hmm. you can just kind of find them wherever you are. That makes sense. I mean, there's so much varied habitat in California, right? Or yes. anywhere. Yes. That there's going to be somebody specializing in something. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, honestly, you could just find like a bush in the, in the corner of a yard or something. And uh -huh. there's not just bees, but like so many different creatures just yeah. all over it. So. Yeah. I'm yeah. bummed though because I never see native bees in my yard. Oh. Yeah. I've only seen like honeybees and I think they're like wool carter bees, which I think are European oh, too. Yeah. There is definitely a European know. one. Okay. After this interview, I started to see native bees in my yard, and I think there are two reasons why. One is that after this experience, I expanded my definition of what a bee looks like to include some truly tiny, adorable bees like the ones Crystal and I saw in Yolo County. And the other reason is that I'd planted some Great Valley gum plant, just like the ones we were seeing covered in native bees in the field where we stood, and the ones in my yard bloomed for the first time not long after this interview. That plant is by far where I've seen the most native bees in my yard. So maybe growing it finally gave the bees a reason to stop by and say hello. Another good way to spot them again is like look for the, like what we saw before. It looked like a bunch of males flying around. Mm -hmm. That'll give you kind of, oh yeah, like here. Here we go. Mm. Ooh, what are you? So there's either, it's either a bee or a wasp. I can't tell from here. Crystal's method is to observe and photograph the bees' behaviors with as little interference as possible. And it just flew away. Which means sometimes losing the bees. Cool. <laughs> it's a lot of your day like that when you're out Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's why it takes so long. Mm -hmm. um, I actually went out with a, a friend, a bee friend who I just met recently, and he, he goes out with nets. Oh, yeah. And he, oh my gosh, so much faster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just told you. Yeah. And because I've, I've stood in the same spot before for like 15 hours to get like photos of things. Oh, and he's just like, no. And just gets a, yeah, gets a yeah. net. But yeah, I mean, I like to get like also behavior and yeah, like interesting sure. things. Like, and you can't get that if you're like just swinging a net around, although you do get so many more things. Right. Like I 100% miss things. So also it's, I think when we got out of the car, it was 94 degrees. Yeah. Does that not bother the bees? Like what's the deal? Do some of them just not mind the heat? Yeah. So some bees will actually, they prefer warm weather. Oh. Like there's certain midday bees and mm -hmm. there's crepuscular bees as well. So they'll prefer dusk or dawn. Mm -hmm. There are some like Perdita, for example, mm -hmm. like the Perdita minima, the smallest known bee in North America. You'll actually find the females in like the low 80s to upper 90s, okay. but then the males you'll find in like the upper 90s to a little over 100. Oh. So there's this like thin temperature where both of them are out and then that's when like the mating happens but a lot of the times since the lower temperatures the females get left alone so they can forage. Oh and there's this there was this crepuscular bee that I photographed like two months ago I think in 29 Palms. Mm -hmm. So the males weren't showing up in the morning. Uh oh. They were only there in the evening and I was the only person looking, so maybe I missed them, but mm -hmm. it was over three days I was looking and I never wow. saw them in the morning. So the females got to kind of like forage a little Do bit more thing. slowly. Yeah, because yeah, the males were like really aggressively following them. How interesting. Um, but yeah, it would be, there's there's not a lot of people who observed that one. It was an Ancelandrina. Okay. Globuli, which is a really cool bee. Crystal has a lot of stories like this, where she sees incredible things by showing up strategically and consistently. But what if you're like me? And you mistake some species of native bees for honeybees, which are actually native to Europe. Oh, oh, here we go. Who's that? That is a female Melisotis. <gasps> okay, it looks kind of like a honeybee. Okay. To me, I don't know. So this What's one's like 
a little stockier. It looks smaller. Yeah, she is a little shorter, uh -huh. a little less long, I guess. And also the way she carries pollen is different. Oh, So okay. instead of like the little balls of pollen on the back legs, she has really long like plumose hair. It's branched kind of like a bird's feather. Oh, yeah. So she uses that to basically cover all of the back hair on her legs. But yeah, it looks like she's actually put in pollen on her back legs right now. If you see her kind of... Yeah. It looks like she's just picking it up right now and then yeah. she's packing it on her back legs. If you look up photos of the Melisotis bees, they immediately look very different from honeybees. They're fluffier and stockier than honeybees, and they're often covered in pollen. But it can be hard to see all that on a tiny creature with the naked eye, so I'm going to cut myself some slack for not noticing those differences right away, and accept that I might have to channel some of Crystal's patience and attentiveness to hone my bee ID skills. But where in California should we go to practice those skills? Are there any like hot spots for native bees in California? Um, or are there just kind of different regions with different varieties? So I feel like most, ooh, let's check out here. So I feel like most people consider Riverside and San Diego County hotspots. Oh. But like I've also gone to like the Santa Monica Mountains. I've also gone to like the Siskiyous or the mm -hmm. Trinity Alps. I mean, I don't know if the... I do, I do think the biodiversity is a lot higher in like Riverside and yeah. San Diego County, but there's like some just really cool creatures that you'll find like endemic to those other areas. Yeah. If you want to hear about why there's so much endemism or so many species of both plants and animals found in the Northern California mountains Crystal's referring to, make sure to check out the episode on the Klamath Mountains with Michael Kaufman. I have a million bazillion questions for you once we kind of sit down. <laughs> okay. At this point, we fled the heat and ducked into my air-conditioned car to get into the full interview. I just kind of want to back up to the beginning for you with native mm -hmm. bees. Like, how did you get interested in native bees? It's a very long, sort of convoluted story. But I guess, like, as a kid, I really liked insects. I really liked uh -huh. nature. And, like, bees were obviously a part of that. But at the time, I was like, honeybees. Mm -hmm. Honeybees. And... It was just kind of something like as I was getting a little bit older, everyone's sort of telling you like, oh, you need like a career, like mm -hmm. an actual path. So a lot of things that I was interested because I was really interested in nature. I was really interested in photography. I started kind of like deviating from that and going to like sitting behind a desk, right. getting a job. I did that for a really long time and mm -hmm. I felt like I was getting kind of like dumber. So this other passion I had, which art I liked as well. So I started just drawing and that took me away from sitting behind a desk. So I actually did art for like a number of years, but then I was basically drawing off of other people's photos mm -hmm. and I wanted to get to a place where I was like, you know what, I'm going to start actually creating my own art pieces and drawing based off of those. So I was like, let me get a camera. But at the time too, I was like also trying to get back into my passion. So again, with nature and I was using my cell phone at the time to get into bees. Mm -hmm. I was started out with honeybees. I ended up moving to native bees because I thought it was like initially honeybees that needed to be saved. Right? Everyone thinks that. Which is, yeah. That's what yeah. I thought. If you're like, hold up, honeybees don't need to be saved? I'm going to try to give you a very condensed history to explain this. Okay, so western honeybees, Apis mellifera, are native to Europe, not North America. European settlers introduced them to North America in 1622, and they very quickly escaped into the Massachusetts forest and made themselves at home there. But it wasn't until more than 200 years later that they were introduced in California by a botanist named C.A. Shelton in 1853. So throughout most of the gold rush, there were no honeybees in California. But what did exist in California during that time was more than 1,600 species of native bees, which had been doing just fine pollinating the wildly diverse and abundant plants native to the state, alongside other pollinators like butterflies, moths, birds, bats, beetles, and wasps. They did this without the help of honeybees. So our ecosystems evolved without honeybees and don't need them to thrive. But what about honeybees in agriculture? Don't we need to save those bees? Eh. Crystal will say more about the role of both honeybees and native bees in agriculture a little bit later. Because while honeybees currently pollinate around $15 billion worth of crops in the U.S. each year, according to the USDA, we may not always have to lean so heavily on this one imported species to pollinate our food crops. So I was out there photographing honeybees. I know this sounds very random, but I was out there photographing honeybees and then I accidentally took a photo of a native bee. <sighs> yeah, and I had no idea what it was and I went back to beekeepers because I was like beekeepers or bee experts and they didn't know what it was oh. and then I ended up going to Facebook and I found this group that was full of militologists which are native bee experts or a lot of entomologists in there as well 
and they told me what the bee was. Mm. It was a very common bee called a mining bee or an andrina. And they also kind of like fact checked me on a bunch of different things and were like, hey, this is actually what's going on with bees. They were talking about how honeybees are not native, like the whole history of them. So like these two different passions, the art and then the photography with my cell phone kind of combined to like, let me get a camera where I can do both of these things. So I ended up getting a camera to take photos for my artwork, but then also photos of native bees Mm -hmm. and then initially with native bees I was like let me just take pretty photos right because I was like hey yeah that's fun I like pretty photos but I can actually like kind of talk about them as well but after a couple of years I started visiting the same locations over and over and I inadvertently started documenting climate change oh wow yeah which now thinking back on it it's like oh yeah of course that's what's going to happen because climate change is happening but like yeah I started seeing like the changes year after year Mm -hmm. and then I started documenting like new behaviors and like photographing it, which just didn't seem like something like a person like me can do, like Mm -hmm. a community scientist or like just a regular lay person, not someone who went to college. And I started realizing how easy it is for people to make discoveries because there's not a lot of people looking. People don't really look at nature and appreciate it. Just I feel like a lot of times nature, the way people look at it, it kind of revolves around people instead of the creatures in nature itself. So my photography now, I try to do, like, beautiful photos, but also, like, help people learn things, as well as myself. Mm-hmm. And you can also, like, hopefully identify these bees to species through my photos instead of collecting them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So they get to keep living out in the wild? Yeah, yeah. Because it's, like, when you go to collections, a lot of times, it's really cool to see these rare bees. But a lot of times with the females, you'll see, like, pollen on their back legs oh. or in their abdomen. And I'm like... You were probably, like, you maybe had, like, a burrow somewhere with some mm-hmm. eggs. Like, what happened to those mm-hmm. those eggs? Because mm-hmm. they, they might have eclosed, but, like, or hatched, and just there was nothing for them to eat. Mm. So it could be killing more than, like, just one individual. Mm-hmm. And I definitely, I appreciate collecting, because I feel like that's how people, scientists, have learned so much about these bees. But I feel like we're at a point now where maybe we don't need to do that as much or maybe we could do it in a different way we've done a lot of collecting yeah we can study those specimens kind of thing yeah Yeah, i think like with cameras like cell phones it's a really high powered camera yeah so and everyone has it on everyone has it yeah exactly so so you could just you can make observations yourself with your cell phone that like everyone has in their pocket you don't need to go out and buy all this camera equipment i love crystal's story because she ties together so many things she's passionate about into studying, documenting, and sharing information about these underrecognized creatures. And Crystal gives a really good example here about why we need more people getting out, observing, and engaging in community science. There's a Perdita called a Perdita interrupta. Perdita is a genus of itty bitty bees native to North America. It's an early season bee. I, I want to say like March, April. I can't remember what month, but it's only out for like a month. And this is a bee that has a symbiotic relationship with poppies and cryptantha. Mm. And if you have it in your yard, you'll have like a pretty decent population, but it's also a very uncommon bee. Mm. No one's ever seen a burrow. And this is in people's backyards or their front yards. So like if you have those flowers in your yard, look for that bee and try and find a burrow. And that's like anyone who has a yard can do that. You can contribute to science. Yeah. But I think just because like a lot of times people don't know that like, hey, this is something uncommon or unique. Hey, I've never seen... Like, oh, I found a burrow really easily. But, like, I didn't know that was a thing that no one else had seen before. Oh, you don't know that you're supposed to be looking for something you're not going to look. Yeah, yeah. There's there's things, like, when I was first starting, there were things that I didn't realize were very unique. Mm. And I just observed that I'd never taken photos of them. And then I would talk to the people about it, and they were like, what? You saw what? (laughs) Yeah, and then I would try and go back and find, and the odds of you finding it again. Yeah. Okay, this is really cool. So I went to Santa Rosa Island one time to look for this bee, and it's really windy there. Have you ever been to Santa Rosa? No, I haven't been to Santa Rosa. So it's super windy there. And like, so this bee is a Coletus bee, and typically the males sleep kind of grouped together on plants. But I think maybe because it's so windy, they've started sleeping in burrows below ground, and they sleep on their backs. That's hilarious. Right? And I got photos of that. And I was talking to someone about it, and they were like, you're confusing males for females. And I was like, I'm not. And I showed them the photos, and they're like, holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's like, oh, like great. just random things, or like male bees sleeping on plants. I really, I would love to get this photo, but like, I never, because I didn't know it was rare, but like, 
there was Anthophora, which are digger bees, sleeping with Melisotis, which is longhorn bees, mm-hmm. grouped together. Oh my goodness. And I didn't get any photos of it together. I took photos of individuals, not as a group. Right. But yeah, things like that. Absolutely. You don't yeah. know. You don't know you don't what know. you don't know. Yeah. Just take <laughs> pictures of everything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or video or whatever. Yeah. That's great. So, yeah. Well, one of the things that kind of came up too in your story is like this distinction between honeybees and native bees. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, they're not native to here. I have a lot of friends who will say they're invasive. Yeah. Right. Do you agree with that assessment? Like, what would you say? And or am I getting into like territory that's controversial? It's so okay. Here's the thing. So, oh, how do I word this? Okay, so there are facts about science, Mm -hmm. but facts can change. Mm. And also people can look at the same facts and interpret them differently based on how they feel about it. So how I feel about it, I would say 100% invasive. Mm -hmm. That's just because I've seen how they've acted around native bees. I've seen how they outcompete them. I've seen how they like push them aside. Mm. I don't personally feel that there is a benefit to having honeybees in the United States. Wow. Even when people use them in farming, like, so I was telling you earlier, I've been visiting farms for this, this bee course that's, that's being developed right now about native bees and farming and people put honeybee hives mm-hmm. next to the, the farmland. But then you go in the farmland and you'll see native bees. And if you actually observe them for a while, a lot of times the honeybees are just kind of like hanging out on the flowers or not doing as much, but you'll see the native bees just like collecting pollen and they're collecting so much more pollen. Mm. They're also fluffier. So they like, even the males that are visiting the flowers who aren't purposely collecting pollen, they're pollinating. But yeah, I, I a hundred percent think honeybees are invasive. I don't think they should be here, which I know is really controversial. I think the only real benefit to them is honey. I was gonna ask about honey. Are there any native bees that make honey? So that's another conversation, and I don't know Ooh. where it's at now, but honey is just nectar that's had a lot of the moisture removed. Oh, okay. And there are other bees that make honey-like substances, but I also know, I haven't had this conversation for a few years, so I don't know where it is now, but there were certain, I guess, beekeepers mm-hmm. who didn't want honey-like substances made by other bees to be called honey. So you'll find bumblebees make like a honey-like substance. A lot of like eusocial bees Mm -hmm. do. There's a lot of bees in like Brazil, Australia, like stingless bees. They make a honey-like substance, which is, which is, I think, honey. (laughs) But yeah, so there are, there are other bees that make honey. All adult bees drink nectar, which Mm -hmm. is honey-like. It's basically just, again, honey with more moisture in it. Like, I mean, as a kid, I drank a lot of, like, honeysuckle mm-hmm. from flowers, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's just, like, a less moist version of that. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. Okay. So you could see bees on flowers concentrating nectar. So they'll, like, have their tongues stuck mm. out when it's really warm. And they're, like, removing the moisture from a lot of the nectar. And mm. they're consuming it. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. I found an article by Australian Geographic about this. And it explains that there are plenty of other bee species that produce honey, but usually not enough of it to make a commercial success. One example the article gives is that, quote, stingless bees are a group of about 500 bee species that are excellent honey producers and are also managed as efficient crop pollinators in some regions. Stingless bees are mostly found in tropical and subtropical regions of Australia, Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Americas. Their honey is different in taste and consistency to honeybee honey. It has high water content, so it's a lot runnier and tastes quite tangy. Stingless bee honey is an important food and income source for many traditional communities around the world. But not only are there other bee species that produce honey, there are also other insects that produce honey, like the Mexican honey wasp and honeypot ants, which is a common name that includes several species of ants that store honey in their abdomens. Please do yourself a favor and Google this immediately, because they hold quantities of honey that seem impossible and is a sight to behold. But the bees we most associate with honey, whose honey we can buy at the grocery store, are a very social sort of bees. Which made me wonder about the social lives of bees in general. What are some of the different ways bees live together or are solitary? So there are bees that are eusocial, like stingless bees, like honeybees, uh, bumblebees, where they live in like a hive or like a colony. Eusocial is spelled E-U-S-O-C-I-A-L. But I like to think of it as one bee asking another, eusocial? And the eusocial bee being like, yeah. But eusocial actually refers only to a specific type of social structure. 
defined by Oxford Languages as, quote, showing an advanced level of social organization in which a single female or caste produces the offspring and non-reproductive individuals cooperate in caring for the young. So honeybees are a classic example of eusocial insects because the queen bee produces the offspring and her worker bee daughters, who don't and can't have their own offspring, take care of the bouncing baby bee siblings. I also just found out that naked mole rats and Damaraland mole rats are considered by some to be eusocial mammals because relatives work together to raise young born from a queen mole rat, which feels like the perfect Halloween costume or character from a Neil Gaiman novel. So eusocial is the social structure that most of us are familiar with in bees. But what are the social lives of other bee species like? There's other bees that are communal or semi-social, so like a lot of helictids, they'll have a foundress, which is also a queen, another word for a queen. So it'll either be her sisters or her daughters, which basically work under her. Mm -hmm. And they could switch from being like just collecting resources for her young and they could switch to maybe being reproductive. Oh my goodness. Um, so they could also be like solitary at a certain time of the year. But then there's also other bees that are semi-social. So they have one burrow entrance, but then they live in like an apartment complex. So they each have their own little apartments, but with their own entrance. Wow. Then there's also solitary. So they could just live in a burrow by themselves, but then there's also solitary in aggregations. So it's like a neighborhood. Oh. So it's a bunch of individual houses, but they all live close together. And then I would say the last one, and these are just the main ones, by the way, but the last one I would say is parasite. Ooh. And this is a bee that actually doesn't live in burrows. Mm. So the males and the females, you'll find them sleeping on plants at oh, night. Goodness. So typically the way it works is most of them will actually go into the burrow of the host bee. They'll lay an egg and then their, their egg will hatch. It'll consume the egg or the larva uh -huh. of the host and then it'll eat all the pollen. There's also some parasites that are bumblebees. So what they'll do is the queen will actually go into a colony. And I think if I remember correctly, she kills the queen. And then mm -hmm. she has the workers from that colony raise her brood. Of the same species or of, a different species? Of her species. Wow. Yeah. So she's a parasite or they're called cuckoo bees okay. a lot of times. So this is a cuckoo bumblebee. Cuckoo bees are named after cuckoo birds because some species of the birds engage in brood parasitism, which means that they lay their eggs in the nests of other birds and get those birds to raise their baby birds for them. There's also a really cool cuckoo bee called a molecta, which I just found out. I didn't realize their phonology was so different, but so most of these other, like the solitary cuckoo bees that are not the bumblebee, they'll go into open burrows. Mm -hmm. This one will actually go into closed burrows. So they'll open them up, mm. go inside there. And I got this all filmed because I was like, what the heck is happening? And then they'll, when they're inside, they'll actually block the entrance from the inside, lay an egg, and then they'll come out and then basically hide the entrance again. Wow. And I was like, this is crazy because I like I didn't know they did that. Yeah. But yeah, I was like, I, I filmed the whole thing. I was like laying there for I don't know how long, but I, I got the whole <laughs> thing filmed. And I was like, what is going on here? But yeah, there's a lot of different forms of social. That is incredible. Yeah. There's such a diversity in the species and like their life histories and yeah. the way that they go about everything that they do. And in California, we have like 1600 yeah, a little species? over 1,600 okay. species. Yeah, so we're a Mediterranean climate, and Mediterranean climates only take up about 2% of the Earth's surface area, but we're twenty, a little over 20% of the Earth's biodiversity. Wild. So that's why in, like, the entire United States, there's about a little over 4,000 species, but in California, there's a little over 1,600. That is nuts. That's a really big percentage. We are not almost half of the land mass. <laughs> we're not. No. Yeah, <laughs> we have we have awesome ecosystems here. It's it's amazing. This is a great place to be interested in bees, right? Yeah. You're just like driving for an hour in this direction, you see something totally different oh than gosh. if you drive in the other yeah. direction. Yeah, like that's why like every single like at least like three to four days a week minimum, I'm out like driving somewhere random and just like hanging out there because it's just cool ecosystems. That is great. Okay, but part of the thing with the 1600 species, right? It's mm. amazing. But it's also, if you're like, I just want to learn a little bit to hang on to, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Where would you say is something that's maybe a species that's pretty statewide mm -hmm. that like a lot of people could observe mm -hmm. if they wanted to just go out and see something? So it depends on what you, I guess it depends on the person, but I'd say one that's statewide and is probably 
one of the easier bees to identify is a Bombus bosnesenskii. It's a yellow-faced bumblebee. It's large. Mm-hmm. If you get like more to like central or northern California, there's a lot of bumblebees that look very similar. Okay. But that is one that I would say is very easy to observe. Like finding nests of them is actually pretty easy. I've stepped out of a car one time and just found one on the side of the oh, sidewalk. Wow. But it's a very common bumblebee. I literally found what I'm pretty sure was a female of this species digging a nest on the coast in Sea Ranch a few months after this interview. Just out for a walk with my kids under some cypress trees. Oh, carpenter bees, because they're around oh. a lot of houses. There's a very big, bright orange one, Xylocopa sonorina, valley carpenter bee. Some people call them teddy bear carpenter bees. They just, they hang out in the same spot waiting for females to pass. So they're very easy to observe. You keep going back to the same spot. They're there all the time. So side note, the valley carpenter bee is a great example of something called sexual dimorphism, where the males and females of the same species have different forms or different morphology. In the case of valley carpenter bees, the females are obsidian black, and the males are this bright golden orange color that Crystal described, and have green eyes. The males are called teddy bears probably both because of their appearance and because they can't sting, while the females can sting but probably won't. Sweat bees are like literally everywhere. Oh my goodness. Like we saw and a little they're tiny, right? They're very tiny, okay. so that gives you like an idea of like how the range of bees and they're mm-hmm. not even the tiniest. And there's a lot of different sweat bees, melisotis bees like the longhorn ones if you have like sunflowers in your yard, mm. a lot of the males will just sleep there. So cute. Yeah, so you can just see them every night. Oh like we saw the females here. Yeah. They're statewide. Okay, so it sounds like step one is just change your idea of what you're looking for when you're looking for bees. Yeah. Like kind of change your perspective because we're so used to looking for honeybees when we think about bees. And if you're looking for this kind of set of parameters around what a bee is, mm-hmm. you're not going to see even yeah. like a fraction of the bees that are out there. Yeah. And I guess like a good thing too is just to know that bees have routines. Mm. So if you understand a bee's routine, you can know when to find it, where okay. to find it. And they'll like, they'll keep visiting the same things over and over. If you see a bee, like we saw those male bees kind of like swarming around. If you stay there for like, I stay there for hours, but maybe less less time than that if you want, you'll actually start to notice they have a pattern that they fly around. You'll start to notice which flowers they're visiting. They kind of just do it in the same order over and over. So you can predict where they're going to be. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of like they're at their day job or something. Okay. So like as with many things in the natural world right Mm -hmm. like it's kind of a it's kind of that building a relationship with something it is yeah yeah you kind of keep coming back making those observations and then patterns start to emerge things start to bubble up to the surface yeah and then you could start to look at flowers and you go okay bees are going to be here Uh uh-huh yeah because you recognize the type of thing that they're looking for yeah exactly goggles on exactly yeah (laughs) exactly yeah that's amazing Like I said before, I didn't think I had native bees in my yard, but after this interview, I started seeing them specifically on my Great Valley gum plants. So spending more time looking, broadening the search image for what actually fits into the category of bee, and building a relationship with the place and the species present there are all ways to start seeing more native bees wherever you are. And if native bees are in our yards, are they also already on our farms? I was curious whether Crystal thought we could feasibly replace honeybees, with native bees in agriculture. And she's a big believer in these sometimes tiny bees. Farm alongside native ecosystems. That's all you need to do. Okay. And like create habitat, like hedgerows and things like that? Yeah. And the thing is too, so you don't necessarily have to replace honeybees with native bees. If you put a native ecosystem in, it's not just bees that are replacing Mm. the honeybees. It's also birds. It's butterflies, moths. It's all these creatures pollinate. So it's just this one single like invasive farm animal versus an entire ecosystem of creatures that will do it so much better. That's amazing. Yeah. And biodiversity is resilience. It is. And so if something happens to one of those species, like the colony collapse disorder, Mm -hmm. right? With the honeybees, it's like, oh no, are we going to eat? Right. But like if if you're making a space for all of these creatures. Yeah. And then I think like a thing too, that's really interesting about it is cause like, so as I've been talking to like farmers this week, I've noticed there's certain things that they consider weeds or pests. Mm. And I've personally considered them like, oh, when I see these things, I'm really excited about them. 
So when you have like a healthy biodiverse mm. ecosystem by where you're farming, there's going to be a lot of creatures in there that you will consider pests, mm -hmm. but they're actually there. They'll control a lot of things that like you don't necessarily want on like your farmland or in your neighborhood, wherever you are, their population control, or they help support things that are like, I call them indicator insects. Oh, Cause if they're there, they mean that these like these creatures that are, I would, I don't know if you'd call them like lower on the totem pole, like aphids, maybe mm -hmm. or like thrips, millibugs, things like that like wasps people don't like wasps but they control the population mm. spiders also control the population mm -hmm. but so do birds as it's well not just like cute little ladybugs yeah <laughs> yeah so if you like pick and choose because I, I like compare it to like kind of like a game of like jenga mm -hmm. if you keep removing blocks mm. it's not stable right so like all of it should be there yeah so yeah with farming if you keep spraying pesticides things that are quote-unquote higher up on the totem pole they're going to take longer to come back mm. opposed to the things that you consider pests one of the things too that I have heard on the kind of agriculture side of things is that native bees are actually better pollinators. They are. They're much so better pollinators. So talk to me about that. Yeah, I think it's like a combination of the way they visit flowers and also the way they're like physically built. Mm -hmm. So a lot of native bees are just fluffier. And with honeybees, if you see the way they carry pollen, they have a, it's a little feature called a curbicula and it's just like a kind of a scoop and mm -hmm. they just put pollen there. Mm -hmm. But native bees, like if you saw that Melisotis, she was covered with pollen. Yeah. But then they also like, they have the little puffy pants where yeah. they cover with pollen there. And then there's like but Osmia. That whole yeah. leg is like totally, totally covered. Yeah. And then like Osmia, if you, this is a good way to identify Osmia too. They kind of like do like a little twerking. Oh my God. They're like, yeah. <laughs> and they, they basically cover the underside of their abdomen with pollen. Oh my God. So they're like just naturally as they're walking around, they're pollinating and like male bees, they're also, a lot of them are also very fluffy. So mm -hmm. they're pollinating as well, not on purpose. They're but just they're, fluffy to be cute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like the native bees that are very covered in hair, they, they pollinate really well. Wow. So yeah, just like, I think a few dozen, I think people were looking at Osmia, which are the mason bees. They mm -hmm. can pollinate as well as a couple hundred honeybees. Wow. And I, I feel like too, if you just like kind of observe them, the native bees seem to be just working so much harder. Like a lot of times mm -hmm. you'll just see like a honeybee just kind of hanging out on a flower. I don't know what they're doing, taking a nap, but yeah, they just seem to be working harder. Okay. Yeah. So the busy bee thing applies better to native bees than honeybees. I, I think so. Okay. I definitely think so. Yeah. We got some good busy bees. That's yeah. great. Another sense in which native bees are better pollinators was demonstrated in a 2023 study out of San Diego titled Honeybees Decrease the Fitness of Plants They Pollinate. The possible explanation put forth in the study is that since honeybees tend to visit many flowers on the same plant before moving on to the next plant, the plants end up self-pollinating rather than getting pollen from another nearby plant, resulting in offspring that's less fit. I'll link this study in the show notes in case you want to read more about it. Okay, so I think that most of us are very bought into the idea of supporting native bees. At this yeah. Point. And one of the things you said earlier is that you look for places with native plants. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are really interested in creating that at mm -hmm. home. Yeah. So any top tips for Californians trying to create habitat at home for bees? Yeah, I would say number one thing is I would create a habitat, maybe not just for bees, but again, for like the whole ecosystem. You can go to, well, I'm in Southern California, so I would look at a place like Theater Payne, which is a native plant garden. Mm -hmm. They have on their website, you could put in your zip code and it'll say what plants are native to your area. I think the Audubon Society has something similar. So you can start there by planting native and then also just based on your area, different insects, different bees will show up. So you can kind of create a habitat around them, those plants for them. So like a lot, most bees are ground nesting. Mm -hmm. They'll, a lot of them will nest right below the plants. Mm. So then if you're going to mulch, think about like what's going to happen to the bees. Are they mm. going to have, be able to go through the mulch? mulch? Are they going to be able to breathe through it? So maybe don't put more than like two inches. Okay. Or you can use like, just like leaves from your plants. Cause those create like kind of a blanket, but like the overwintering bees or butterflies, whatever can like still breathe through them very oh, well. Nice. Okay. Yeah. They can get through it. Yeah. And then also like, yeah, you could plant to attract certain bees like mm. redbud mm, is mm -hmm. great for carpenter bees. Love it. Mm. Uh, Mega Kylie bees, the leaf cutter bees love it. And you could see that they're there cause they have those little like sea the cut shapes. Moon. Yeah. Again, like we were talking about the Perdita interrupta. If you want to track those, you can put poppies and the cryptantha you can get a book like the bees in your backyard mm. so they came out with an east coast version and a west coast version came out in i think may 
that's a really great book to start with. So it'll help you know specifically what bees are in your area, what they like. Mm-hmm. You can learn about their phenology, about their life cycles, things like that. But yeah, yeah. That's great. Okay, yeah. a listener had a bunch of questions about oh, okay. habitat in backyards yeah. too. And you kind of touched on some of them. So her name is Andrea or Andrea. I'm not sure which, I'm sorry. <laughs> but they were wondering if, like with sheet mulching, okay? Mm-hmm. So like you mentioned, maybe don't put more than a couple of inches. And you said that their nests are often like right under plants. So would it be a good idea to like leave a little bit of space of bare ground right under some yeah, of the plants? Yeah, or... yeah. So I normally say like six to 12 inches okay. around plants. Also, if you're planning on a hugel, like just like a mound, I know oh. a lot of people put like a lot of different things. I've seen a lot of bees like nesting in hugels. Oh. I had to look this up. Hugel mounds, according to the Permaculture Research Institute, are a way of creating raised beds, which over time break down into mounds of fertility. They work on the principle of mimicking how a forest works to regenerate itself. The deadwood falls and begins to decompose, fallen branches and leaf litter begin to accumulate on top, and year after year, rich soil begins to form because it creates a diverse habitat for decomposers, fungi, and bacteria to thrive. It goes on, when recreating this forest technique, you can use logs as the base for the mounds and top with any organic matter you have easily accessible close to your site. Branches, leaves, straw, hay, wood chips, any green vegetation, grass clippings, etc. Layer the mounds using coarser material below and the finest material on top. Top with a fine layer of soil or compost and mulch again and they are ready. So there you go. Hugel mounds. Also, a lot of bees are stem nesting bees. So if you are cutting back your foliage, maybe leave, I think it's like 12 to 18 inches. Anything that has like a pithy stem, they'll create their own little nest in there. So you don't need to actually provide like, there's a lot of like bee houses people Mm -hmm. get. I feel like it's more so for people than bees. Okay. Also, there's like a lot of cleaning required. So if you just create a habitat, that's fine. See, and that for me, that's like one of my questions because I know I'm not going to keep up on maintenance. I wouldn't do it either. Like, Like, it's just not going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. Like, that's the thing too. Cause like, I know like, yeah. And also too, it requires you knowing the phenology of the bee. Cause Mm -hmm. there's certain bees that will have like two generations in a year, maybe, maybe even three. Some of them just like one part of the year, like just one a year. Um, So yeah, if you're not as interested in figuring out that and like figuring out how to properly clean them and then getting a proper like bee house then like it's that has a lot. to kind of be a passion in and of itself yeah, like, and, to be able to maintain that and i love bees and i know i wouldn't do it right yeah. so yeah leave the stems leave the leaves mm-hmm. Xerxes society has a thing leave the leaves but yeah if you're cutting back the stems leave like 12 to 18 inches pithy stems Xerxes society which is spelled x-e-r-c-e-s has a lot of information about leaving the leaves so look them up to learn more And you can also get a sign for your yard that says leave the leaves so that your HOA, if you have one, might leave you alone, but no promises. Even if you do keep getting grumpy letters from your HOA, as I do, everyone who passes by your yard will learn something about helping wildlife, which seems like a really easy way to make a difference. Okay, more listener questions. I've got a listener, Belinda, who is nicknamed B by her mom. Oh. Based on her determination. Yeah. That's why she got that nickname, which is great. And she wants to know what your favorite native bee is. Okay, I have two. Okay. Wait, is she talking just like an individual species or like, okay, wait, no. I'll, I'll talk about Jenner. Answer it your way. That's, that's okay. just what she asked. Yeah. I absolutely love Perdita and Anthophora. Mm-hmm. So the fairy bee and then digger bee is okay. another, yeah. So those are really cool. But I think the prettiest is Nandrina. Which one is that? What does that look like? It's a mining bee. So they're the ones that have, they kind of look like they have, the females have really thick eyebrows. Oh, so cool. the inside of their eyes, it's called facial forvia. They have really thick hair. Oh. And if you get a shot of their face or if you see their face, the females, then you know that's, well, okay, there's more exceptions. But that's, uh, <laughs> but that's definitely an Andrina. There's also, there's, there's also like the Ansel Andrina, which I was talking to you about before. They have that as well. They're beautiful. They're, they're gorgeous. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Okay. I'm wondering what are, are there any like iconic plant and bee relationships? Maybe like a particular native plant or like a bee specialist or anything like that where it's like a cool relationship between a plant and a bee. Oh, okay. This one's really cool. So I I finally saw this this year. So there's a bee called a Xerolictus timberlakei. Mm -hmm. I wish I knew the common name. I don't know what it is. So it's a desert bee and it has a relationship with two flowers one is one of them is a menzilia the other one is a ghost flower which the genus name changed i don't know what it changed to but the the ghost flower imitates the menzilia and it looks like it has a female's 
abdomen what? in it. So the males come to the ghost flower. They try to mate with it. Oh my God. And then it has sort of like a trap on the back. So it taps pollen on the male's back in an area where they can't remove it. So as they go around from flower to flower trying to mate with the, the flower, they pollinate it. And then the females, they'll be in the menzilia. And it's so funny. I actually, I photographed. So the menzilia has, it's really thick in the center. And the, so the females dive in. Mm-hmm. So it's just their butt sticking out. And it looks wow. so similar to the ghost flower. Does it, it trick you when you see it? Or you're like, oh, but uh, you know. It doesn't trick me. <laughs> and then you know. <laughs> yeah. So like the, so bees can't see red. They oh, see it okay, as black. Okay, okay, okay. And the back of the, the Xerolithus timberlakei female is black. So they okay. think it's the same. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just funny because you see like just the back end of the female sticking out and you get like, okay, I get why the males are tricked by it. Sure. It's really, they're really beautiful flowers too. I got to see this. It's like, is it like Venus flytrap action? Like it closes? It doesn't close. It's just like, it's kind of like when they go in there, it just kind of triggers the oh. flower to just like put pollen on wow, the back like that. It just, just taps. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And a lot of the males have really thick pollen on their back uh-huh. and like you've been visiting a lot of flowers <laughs> um you yeah can see what a playboy. so the ghost flower is imitating the manzilla, the common name for which is the sand blazing star but not only is it imitating the sand blazing star it's imitating what that flower would look like if a female xerolictus timberlakei bee were in it and the males are all about it and end up pollinating the ghost flower when they try to mate with what they think is the female bee in the different flower. And if you're wondering what this Trixie flower looks like, it's a gorgeous white flower flecked with red. And of course, it has the red would-be bee butt right in the middle. It's native to the southwestern United States and northwest Mexico. You can find pictures of it on Calscape if you type in ghost flower. Okay, another plant question. Mm-hmm. I have a listener who was wondering about oak tree relationships oh so do you know because oak trees are like keystone plants right they're yeah. like super important for supporting a lot of insect species so is there a bee species that you know of or or a family or anything that With relies on oaks. oak trees yeah no i don't know of any Normally, I think of wasps mm, more so with oaks because okay. I know there's a lot of wasps that have really... parasitoid wasps and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You'll see like a lot of galls. Mm-hmm. Like it's basically kind of like a cocoon, but formed by the plant mm-hmm. that the developing wasps are in. I don't know of any bees. Yeah, I don't know of any. Okay, okay, yeah. that's interesting. I looked up bees in the index of Doug Tallamy's The Nature of Oaks, and it took me to a page about wasp-oak relationships, which only mentions bees to say that they're in the same order as wasps. So that isn't to say that there aren't any bees with oak relationships, but it does seem like wasps, such as the cinnipid gall wasps Crystal mentioned, are typically more associated with oak trees than bees are. All right. And then I asked my friend Shalico, who's the SFN Bloom guy that does like the bee suit dress up. That's a great name. Right? Yeah. So his question for you is, if you were going to be a bee for Halloween, (laughs) which bee would you be? Which bee would I be? Oh my gosh. Oh. Ooh. Okay. Wait. I'll stick to California bees. Mm, okay. I would be an Agapostum and Meloventris, which is a green bee. It's green in the front. Mm. And depending on where they are, if they were more in like a xeric area, like desert, so the females have white and brown abdomens. Mm-hmm. But if you're in more like neighborhood, like suburban area, then it's brown, white, and black. Oh. But the green is really, really bright and shiny and it's gorgeous. Oh. Um, there's also a Texanus, which is fully green. So one of those, because they really stand out. Yeah, that's They're beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, they're really beautiful. I love that. That's yeah. a great answer. He also wants to know about bee architecture. Are there uh, bees building cool things? Oh my God, yes. Let's talk about that. Okay, so let me... Okay, so we'll go back to the aggregation, because okay. I talked about that before. So there's bees that build basically chimney-like structures called turrets. Mm. So around their burrow, they have a little chimney, and it's basically to stop any, like, parasites from Mm. getting in there. Mm -hmm. So they build that, they have a gland on their abdomen that they combine with saliva, and then they put, they dig up the ground, and then they basically go around in a circle, butt up, and create these little turrets. They're, like, 3D printing it. Yeah. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah, that's actually, they are, yeah. And then there's a bee called a dianthidium. It's a pebble bee. So they create, I don't know if there's just one cell inside or more, but it's basically a nest on plant stems mm-hmm. that's made of pebbles. Whoa. There's another one that's called a resin bee. So they have these like sort of brown, round 
resin balls and then there's like a little stem at the bottom for mm-hmm. airflow they're single celled those are really cool there's also wool carter bees mm-hmm. which you know about so they collect like the the fuzzy plant material from a lot of different plants and they use it to like basically stuff the inside of their little burrow chambers oh. with does it make it cozy i mean i guess uh, it presumably makes it, cozy. it looks very cozy <laughs> that's amazing yeah I, I mean, I think you social bees are just cool too. Like like bumblebees, they have these like sort of like bulbous looking collection of combs, I guess you would oh. call them, inside their their nest, kind of like stacked on top of each other. It looks kind of very unorganized, but it's very okay. cool looking. Nice. So yeah. And people are probably taking inspiration from that. There's so much of that like with architecture yeah. now. I feel like. Yeah. Oh, this is really cool. Okay, so I was talking about Coletus a little bit before. So this bee. A lot of bees actually do this, but this one specifically, they'll actually line the inside of their burrow with a waterproof material that Mm -hmm. they create. And people were actually looking at that as an alternative to plastic because Mm. it's biodegradable and it's waterproof. (gasps) Wow. Yeah. Or water resistant, I guess. So that could be inspiration from nature for plastic replacement. Something sustainable. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Yeah. And the common name is plasterer bees because of that. Okay. Yeah. This idea of looking to the natural world to inspire our inventions and technological improvements is called biomimicry. And there are many familiar examples of biomimicry all around us, from Velcro inspired by burrs, to compression socks inspired by the legs of giraffes, to nets that capture water from fog inspired by coast redwood trees. I learned all of this in a book called Nature's Wild Ideas by Christy Hamilton, which I found out about from Griff Griffith, the guest on the Redwood Tree episode, because he's featured in the book. And speaking of guests of the podcast doing cool things in the world, Crystal created a card deck called Native Bees of the Western United States that I'll let her tell you more about. So I'm I'm not like a production company or product manufacturer. Mm -hmm. I was just like, oh, I had this idea to make cards for everyone to pick up something new information about bees they have different areas like if this is in like a conifer forest you'll Mm -hmm. find them grasslands plains coastal sage shrub desert whatever and then like natural suburban urban if you live in these areas you'll know this bee is here also the plant relationships there's size there's photos male female different information wing venation too so you can even identify them by that but i was trying to make them very pretty and just colorful and just easy for like everyone to understand And it was just, it's something that's been in my mind since like 2019. Mm. And then I did a Kickstarter this year, which was successful. I was so happy about, and then I ordered enough for, I thought would last a year, but after the Kickstarter was over, they basically sold out in five days. And I was like, I was very, I'm, I'm super happy about it, but I'm also like, I'm slightly like, oh my gosh, what do I do now? Right. Yeah. Cause How I, many do I reorder? What yeah, I? I'm, I'm really trying to figure that out. Like, and it's just like, it's not something that was even like conceptually. I was like, hey, this is something that might happen. Mm-hmm. So I am definitely reordering. Reorder she did. And that second order sold out too. So now the cards are in their third printing and they're now being fulfilled by Amazon. So Crystal doesn't have to package every order anymore. So if you want to get a set of cards, search for Native Bees of the Western United States or just B-Sip Native Bees on Amazon, and they should be the first result in a green box. I'll also put a link in the show notes. If you do get them, don't forget to leave a review on Amazon because that helps potential buyers know how awesome these cards are, which helps Crystal very directly. And it only takes like two extra minutes. Or if you would rather get the cards from a brick and mortar store, there are some great options in Southern California. They're currently available at Theodore Payne Foundation, South Coast Botanical Garden, Hahamunga Native Plant Nursery, Descanso Gardens, Huntington Library, which is actually a garden, and you can check them out from the actual LA County Library and the Altadena Library. So keep your eyes open in those locations and soon, hopefully, some Northern California locations as well. And then are you working on any other projects you want to talk about? Like any books going on? What's going on with Yeah, so I became a National Geographic Explorer this year. Yeah. Congratulations. That's amazing. I'm super excited. So yeah, the basically what I'm working on with them is creating a book. It's called the ABCs of California. Mm -hmm. So every single letter in the alphabet is a species or a subspecies of B in California. So they're in different ecosystems. Like there's one I was talking about before. It's on an island. There's some that are on mountains, vernal pools. I was thinking about doing a farm. I might not do that anymore. Also neighborhoods, just deserts, just like all these different random ecosystems. So it's not just about pretty photos of the bee it's also about like the ecology of the area what's happened like there's a bee that an area was on fire like there were three fires in one year and then this bee 
reappeared. Wow. And then there's this other area. It's in the Santa Monica Mountains. There I found about, I think, 41 or 42 species of bees in this just one small area. Whoa. And then people have been moving into that area because it's really biodiverse. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then they were worried about fires. So then a conservancy came through and started coming through with a mm -hmm. tractor and they cut down mm -hmm. all of the native plants and the bees completely disappeared. And the bee that is featured for that one, I, it took me two years to photograph it. And I photographed it two weeks before they came through. Cause it was, oh, I think it was wow. 2021. It was the week of the 4th of July. Mm. Cause I think they were anticipating firework. Mm. Yeah, um, but yeah, sense. and I've been, I went back again, I've been going back in every year just to see, and then they've been going through with a tractor mm. again every year. So it's basically, devastating. I, yeah, I feel like it's, I mean, it could probably bounce back if maybe they stopped doing that, mm -hmm. but the only thing that, that is there is ants. But so yeah, I'm working on that. An update on the ABCs of California project. Crystal has now photographed a bee species for every letter of the alphabet. So follow her at BSIP on Instagram to get updates as the book continues to come together. But then I'm also working on, I don't know if this is going to happen, but I wrote a script for a short film based on a bee I had a very short experience with. It's going to be like animated. I have a character designer who's done the design for it. And then I'm going to, I have no idea how to shop it around. I'm going to shop it around to see if any like studio wants to pick it up. But it's going to be like an eight to 10 minute short, uh -huh. no words. But yeah, it's going to be about that bee. <sighs> I want to see so, it. Yeah. I, hope, I hope it happens. I want to see it. <laughs> I really hope it happens too. Like I'm like kind of flying blind because I'm like, I have no idea how to do this. I'm just going to try and figure it out as I go along. We need more stories about the natural yeah, world. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. And what's really cool too about it, because I feel like a lot of times with like, I'm not going to bring up movies, but when they're about insects, they, they kind of <laughs> like walk around on their hind legs. They talk. <laughs> it's for some reason, it's always about males mm. when they're doing <laughs> things that typically the females do. So this one's like, the body proportions are correct. They're behaving like bees. Mm -hmm. There's other creatures. So it's not just the bee. There's also different birds. There's lizards. You see like other little creatures around because they're in the ecosystem. I love that. I'm here from the present for me, which is the future from when this interview was recorded, but the past from whenever you were listening with another update. Crystal has now started talking to industry people and is putting together a pitch. So fingers crossed because... I want to see this short real bad. Okay, two last questions. Okay. One, any common myths? Any common myths that we maybe didn't cover yet or just, oh. or it could be things that we did cover that are just like, oh, things um, that drive you crazy. I mean, basically, oh, there's a cool bug out there. I guess there's like bees, native bees do not need bee houses. It's mm -hmm. not, they're not technically beneficial for them. They will use them, but not beneficial. Actually, if you have a native ecosystem in your yard and you find that the bees aren't using the bee houses, that probably means that you created a really good ecosystem. Oh, okay. Also, you don't need to put water out for bees. It's honeybees that will use it. Well, I said bees. I mean, native bees. Right. Honeybees use them. Also, a lot of facts that are attributed to just bees in general only apply mm. to honeybees. Check your bee so, facts. So, yeah. So, like, people always say that if a bee stings you, it'll die after. Mm-hmm. That's a honeybee. Okay. People also say after bees mate the males die. That's a honeybee. Okay. I guess like when you talk about bees, cause I compare honeybees to chickens. Mm. So it's oh, like basically yeah. like applying facts about chickens to birds that are like threatened or I know eagles aren't as much now. I can't think of like just birds. Mm -hmm. So it's like basically applying facts about chickens to like an eagle or like a penguin oh, when goodness. it doesn't apply. So when right. people say like, this is a bir bird factor, this is a bee factor, and it only applies to just one individual bee. It's not yeah, I guess just be more specific yeah. if you can. Like, just kind of a follow-up question. Like, what bee do you mean? Or mm. are you talking about native bees? Or are you talking... If you're talking about honeybees, I would say honeybees instead of just bees. Right. Like, people are referring to one four thousandth of yeah. the bees that we have, like, oh. here in North America. Yeah. Also, okay, so there's this quote that, like, keeps getting repeated. It's, it's attributed to Einstein. Einstein did not say it. If the bee disappears off the surface of the globe, the man would only have four years of life left. That's not true. Uh-huh. Also, like, when you really break it down, it doesn't make sense because bees are not the only creature that sustain life mm -hmm. on Earth. They're not the only creature that pollinates. I would say instead, like, insects, if insects disappeared, I wouldn't mm -hmm. put a four-year, mm -hmm. like, time limit on it. But there's so many things that only eat insects. There's so many things that only eat things that eat insects. So insects 
it wouldn't just be people. It would be like ecosystems. Sure. But bees, if bees disappeared, like a lot of bees, if they disappear, people wouldn't notice because mm-hmm. they don't negatively or positively impact people. But like that doesn't mean that they're not important mm-hmm. to the ecosystem. So I, I feel like that shouldn't mean they are more or less important. We privilege certain species. We do. And the closer that they're related to us and yeah. how they impact us, the more we privilege them. Yeah, and like the more like the more cute they are too. Like that's true. Okay, this is an example I, I do with like a lot of my talks. So the phenomenon Crystal's about to explain is called the Indian Ocean dipole. And it's a climate pattern I didn't know existed until she told me about it. It happens between Eastern Africa and Australia. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure it happens every year, but because of climate change, it's really like strengthened it. So you remember a couple of years ago when there was the, the drought in Australia mm-hmm. and they had a lot of fires. So basically there was a drought. What happens is if there's a drought in Australia, like Eastern Africa will get a lot of floods. So there was oh. flooding at the same time in Eastern Africa. And no one was really talking about more recently, there was flooding in Australia Eastern Africa, you know, it's like opposite. So anyway, the creature that people were really concentrating on in Australia were the koalas, which have symbiotic relationships with eucalyptus. So a lot of the koalas that survived the fires, the eucalyptus burnt. Mm. And a lot of them ended up starving because they didn't have anything else to eat because they just rely on that one plant. So people were really paying attention to them. One, because they're bigger, they're fluffy, they're very cute. But the same, yeah. The same thing's happening with bees because there's a lot Mm. of bees that rely on just one single plant Mm. to live, but because they're not as large or not as cute or they don't, again, negatively or positively impact people, a lot of times people just think they're like worth ignoring. Right. It's easier to know one fuzzy mammal yeah than 1600 oh yeah tiny totally. bees totally it's <laughs> so much like, easier uh, yeah it's overwhelming I can't yeah know that. it's a, like that number is very huge uh-huh. but you, they're not less important because of that they're not less important not less important to the ecosystem mm-hmm. so i mean yeah i think people should value nature as just existing as a thing because like also ecosystems can be tiny like it can be like mm. a, just a little patch of flowers mm-hmm. and if this one creature disappears from that patch of flowers what happens to the flowers or all of the other creatures that live in it as well. Mm -hmm. So again, that patch can disappear, doesn't impact people, but it does have an impact on the different creatures that were in that little ecosystem. Right. And it has ripples outward, even if they're small, right? Like there's birds now that aren't going to eat the insects that were there. Yeah. And then, yeah. And it's just too, like birds also are great at seed dispersal. Mm. So if the Mm. birds like aren't going to be there, there could be like this area that was like farmed by people and it was like abandoned and the birds show up and then they, there's seeds and stuff starts coming back. So it does have ripple effects that you can't even like predict. Right. So totally unknowable. Yeah, it is. It's like, it's really hard to predict. I feel like a lot of times when like people are trying to like intervene with nature to like help things along hindsight, you kind of like, (laughs) like, Oh yeah, that, that makes sense why that happened. Yeah. But when you're, when you're trying to do things to be helpful, like a lot of times people can like kind of mess things up. They yeah. can like introduce a toad that might like, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. There's so much of that. There are so many examples of these cascading effects in nature, but I want to share one that I came across recently in Kim Stanley Robinson's The High Sierra, A Love Story. Robinson devotes an entire chapter to fish and frogs in the High Sierra, describing how early members of the Sierra Club introduced golden trout and other fish to high rivers and lakes that had previously had no fish at all. The fish, unsurprisingly, did what fish do, and gobbled up insects that frogs had previously relied on, as well as the frogs themselves. A less expected consequence was that the fish also outcompeted rosy finches for insects, leading to a precipitous drop in rosy finch numbers, which is problematic not only for the birds, but also because rosy finches play an important role in seed dispersal which means an impact on surrounding plant communities and the creatures that rely on them. So this is exactly like the example that Crystal gave of a system lacking birds to spread seeds, which radiates the wound outward in ways that can be difficult to predict. Or like the Jenga tower she described earlier, we don't always know which pieces will cause the tower to topple. But the more we take out, the more wobbly things get. Okay, last question. Okay. What about native bees still blows your mind or takes your breath away? I just feel like observing them, I feel like they're a lot smarter mm. than people give them credit for. And I, I, well, if you just observe them, a lot of times it just, it, you could kind of see their like thought process and mm. thinking. And it's just, 
I feel like people kind of associate a certain, like, I don't know how intelligent they are, but I feel like people associate people at the top. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I just, I feel like, again, they have routines. They go about their day. They, like, remember things. They also, you start to see them learning. Mm. So bumblebee, well, actually, all of the six families of bees that are in the United States can do buzz pollination. Some species of flowers hang onto their pollen and are like, no, good vibes only. I'm only going to give you this pollen with specific vibrations. So the bees do what is known as buzz pollination to get the pollen to release from the flower. And honeybees can't do it, which means that honeybees can't pollinate certain crops that require buzz pollination, like tomatoes, blueberries, eggplants, and potatoes. You can actually hear bees doing this if you watch them. They vibrate their wings super rapidly when they're on a flower requiring buzz pollination, and the resulting hum is a different note than that of their typical wing noise in flight. But apparently there's a learning curve for this behavior. So, and you'll also see them like when they first emerge as adults, you'll see them kind of bad at it. Mm. And then they'll get better. Really? So they could develop skills. They're just, they're, they're beings and they're individuals. And I feel like they should just be respected. So I think that's just something that's really cool about them. If you just, and it's not just bees too. Right. It's like all things in nature. So yeah, yeah. just gotta look. Gotta yeah, just looking. look. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I love that. Thank you, Crystal. Yeah, no this problem. So great. Yeah. When we finished recording, I took a moment to choose a playlist for the drive and headed down the dirt road leading out of the wildlife refuge and toward home. But Crystal stuck around for a little bit longer, checking to see which bees were out before she left. And in doing this, she found something remarkable, something only known to have been seen a precious few times since it was named in 1939. Right outside of her car, Crystal found a bee called the California Smooth Nomad Bee, Brachynomata melanantha. So on the day of our interview, Crystal became the first person known to have photographed this super rare parasitic bee. And prior to Crystal's photo, no one knew which bee this bee parasitized. Since she didn't see the parasitic bee enter any burrows, Crystal can't say for sure, but she suspects it's a parasite of the valley mini digger bee, Anthophorula cayenura, which was abundant in the area that day. And this wasn't the first time Crystal had captured something rare. She's taken the first known photos of a dozen species of native bees. Three of those were with another person who also took photos at the same time. So Crystal, thank you for broadening our collective understanding of these incredible overlooked creatures for going out and exploring the ecological richness all around us, and for inspiring us to do the same. I also want to thank Crystal for not only coming out on this interview with me, but also for being there for my million questions along the way and putting this episode together. And I want to thank Ralph Washington Jr. of the Entomology episode for suggesting the location for this interview. We still need to go on a hike, hopefully somewhere with a lot of bugs. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it or learned something, please share it with a friend who grows tomatoes in their backyard so they can get those good buzz pollinators to show up at the party they're throwing back there. And if you listen to the whole episode, I always share something interesting or embarrassing or mundane from my week. And this week, it's that I spent most of the day outside in foresty areas for three days in a row, which happens so much less frequently than I want it to. And I felt like a new person. So I highly recommend as much of that as you can do. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I'll catch you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called Ida Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to the song as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes.